Welcome to The Bridge, a podcast exploring how we get to the future we really want. My name is Jared Michaels. I am a Zen priest, a psychotherapist, and a longtime student of this bridge. I am thrilled to be here with my friend and colleague Chris Searles and our guests as we try to build this bridge together. Today's guest is international indigenous rights activist, Daniel Lavelle. Welcome, Daniel, so much. Welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting. Daniel, I just want to give people a quick background on your background. Dr. Daniel Lavelle is U.S. Director for Survival International, one of the world's leading human rights groups working to empower tribal peoples with control of their lives and lands and the freedom to determine their own futures. And we're going to talk in this episode about why indigenous empowerment is central to the global environmental solution. Daniel earned his PhD in environmental science, policy, and management from UC Berkeley in 2016. Prior to that, he earned a master's in Latin American studies and a BA in English. He has been U.S. Director of Survival International for over three years. And you can visit survivalinternational.org to learn more about the organization. And again, Daniel, welcome. I'd like to ask you to introduce your work just a little bit. And my follow-up question is, why are Indigenous people so important to the global environmental solution? Great. Well, yeah, let me start just by saying a little bit about Survival International, because we have been around for 50 years, over 50 years now, as an organization that fights for the rights of indigenous and tribal peoples around the world. We have a global focus and we work all across the global South. So Latin America, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia. And really our philosophy is to partner with indigenous groups and peoples that don't have a voice of their own in the international media, maybe not even in their home country. So they may not speak the local language. They're often very isolated peoples with very little political power, very little political voice. And of course, that makes them extremely vulnerable to what you would call bad actors, perhaps. Oil companies, illegal bloggers, agribusiness companies that see their land and the resources on it as something that should be exploited, extracted, and they see indigenous peoples by and large, as in the way. So what we try to do is, I like to say we have both a megaphone and a spotlight. So with the spotlight, we highlight particular indigenous struggles for their lands. And when I say their lands, we say their lands and their lives and their livelihoods, because those are all three very intimately connected. And we can talk more about that. And I'm sure we will, because it relates to your second question about the importance to the environment and addressing the environmental crisis. So we spotlight those threats and bring them to international stage to mobilize public opinion and public action to protect the land rights. Because we see when when land rights are protected, indigenous and tribal peoples can not just survive, but they can thrive. That land base is very important. And second, what we do is also give a megaphone So we try to provide an outlet for indigenous voices directly to the outside world. And this is both for this sort of political organizing to give them political strength, but also because it's also important, I mean, you could say philosophically important that marginalized voices are heard, especially when it's part of a process that's larger, which is really combating sort of negative stereotypes, existing prejudices, racism, really against indigenous and tribal peoples that exist all over the world and facilitates attacks on their lands and, and themselves. Um, so from that, what we, we've working on a number of different campaigns. Um, and yeah, I really encourage people to go to our website where you can learn about more. We have information about urgent actions on how people can get involved with particular struggles. 
And I can talk more about specific campaigns a little bit later, but I did kind of want to get to this really important question. I know in your guys' mind about what is this connection in between indigenous peoples and the global environmental solution. There's at least a three or four part answer to this, although it's not that complicated, really. But there are some moving parts. But just to start out with, we now know that the 80% of biodiversity that we still have left on the planet is in indigenous territories. And this is even though the surface of the planet, they control now maybe 18 to 20% of the globe. So very little, but within that small territory, right, we have this amazing repository of extremely important biodiversity, especially in tropical forests. And so there's that as point number one. And the related point that comes after that is that these areas are increasingly under threat. And, you know, we can list them all off. And I know we've all heard of these recently to varying degrees. You know, oil exploration, gas exploration, and extraction, or mining, like gold mining, or other types of mining can be very destructive just in environmental terms, not to mention the human cost to the people living in those areas. So these areas are the ones that really are where the resources are left in a lot of ways too, because we've gone around you know, being busy despoiling the rest of the planet. So this is what left, and it's not a coincidence that it's there, right? which I think is another critical point. This biodiversity is still there because the indigenous peoples who've lived there for generations, multiple, multiple generations in many, many cases, right, have really developed a vital management of these natural resources, how to sustainably manage these resources. And that's why they're still there, right? So really we say they're the best guardians of these resources that are important to all of us. And so there's that piece. And another piece is that they're also on the front lines of resistance to destructive forces in terms of you know, social movements. Right? Sometimes it's an individual indigenous communities. Sometimes they're um, associated with others or NGOs. It really depends. But really, the people who are really putting their lives on their line to stop this destruction right, are also indigenous people by and large. Um, and you know, it's very dangerous in many places to do this type of work. It's very dangerous to be an environmental defender. Brazil and the Amazon is particularly deadly right now and has been for a few years. Uh, many, if not the majority of those people under threat as environmental centers are indigenous people. So they're really doing a lot of the labor for us. And then lastly, I'd say they're also really important in this environmental question because they're also under threat from some of the solutions proposed by institutions and governments in the global north to address the climate and environmental crisis. So I think, you know, that deserves a little bit of unpacking here. This is a key idea. This is how you and I met recently. That's right, because we do have um, one of our campaigns that we've been doing, and we've been doing this for decades, is really trying to change how international conservation operates, especially in places like Africa and Asia, where there's a model of conservation that um, in a nutshell sees peoples, local peoples, tribal peoples as threats to the environment, not as guardians, but as, as threats and need to be removed. So they see them as incompatible from a protected area or from an ecosystem. And we'll be familiar with this in the United States from our own national parks, you know, for example, you know, do we have this idea, we really wanna protect the environment we make a Yosemite, we make a Yellowstone, and you can't do anything in there except hike and take pictures and camp. People are a threat to this area and can't live there. And that idea got exported to many places in Africa and Asia, less so in Latin America. And we talk a little, we can talk a little about that later too, about different ways of conserving the environment through indigenous rights. But in a nutshell, we've seen indigenous and local peoples as part of protected areas and projects that are funded by large conservation organizations, 
um, through US government money and other international money, right? kicking indigenous peoples off their lands, forcibly evicting, even though sometimes they say it's voluntary, but usually it's not, or people who have been beaten, raped, thrown in prison, killed by eco guards that again, are related to this funding. And so that's something that we're trying to push back against because um, obviously this is a human rights violation and us saving the environment cannot be built upon the backs of the most marginalized and vulnerable in our societies. And second, it's also just not effective for conservation. You turn peoples who should be the allies in protecting the series and using them sustainably, they you know, need them to reproduce their societies and cultures. They should be the allies, right? You turn them into enemies at gunpoint or at legal order point. And so it's also bad for conservation. It's not working. We could still see the species threats. And I'll just drop one little anecdote, informational anecdote about this, because we work in India where some tribal members and our tribal peoples in India under this umbrella is called Adivasi people. Of course, a lot of peoples under that umbrella have been kicked off of land to create reserves for protecting tigers. But when you compare the areas where they're allowed to stay versus the areas where they're kicked off, you see more tigers in the areas where they weren't kicked off their land. So oftentimes even more effective, if we're worried about biodiversity and environmental conservation, we definitely are, given it's such a critical issue. But we really need to change how we go about this and how we think about this on a very large level, right? To make it where I would humbly submit an indigenous rights conservation first. And that's yeah. really how we, I think we can construct a more just path forward for international conservation and environmentalism writ large. So anyway, I know that was a lot uh, of points. Great. But I, I it's, you know, it's we, totally welcomed. Okay, great. It's it was great. And I just, I, I want to say that you, you, you blew my mind. I, I just, you know, uh, turning towards this interview, I, you know, prepped and I thought about it, but it's, it's really compelling. And uh, yeah, it just seems a bit of, like a very deep, like to the root, like a solution that goes to the very root of the problem. So I, I just really appreciate all that. Appreciate your work. Great, thank you. We have lots of resources online too that go into more depth about um, these issues. And there's also a number of articles, maybe as a philosophy <laughs> major to be interested in, but look sort of at the philosophy of the conservation kind of ethos of walling off nature and how it comes from these Calvinist lines of thinking. Our now retired executive director, Stephen Corey, has a series of these um, online that um, kind of lay out more of a historical and philosophical approach to this. But of course, where, where we're working, we're very interested primarily, right, in the on-the-ground impacts right now. Well, we'll put those in on the, uh, the sh like the show notes. The, we'll, we'll put links to all those. There are so many things I want to say that I'll try to come back to a couple of them. Because I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when we spoke last week, I had this, I was beginning to kind of see things in a new way. When I saw the campaign, the Big Green Lie campaign a couple of weeks ago, it initially struck me in a, in a couple of ways. But then after I reflected on it, I thought, oh, I have this all wrong. I have this same superiority complex that I'm assuming prior conservation has had that we need to try and do indigenous people a favor in, in, a, in a nutshell. And the reality is that the reason that the biodiversity is on these lands, that the reason that there's also uh, 33 years of carbon emissions in these forests, uh, these tropical forests that indigenous people still occupy is because of the indigenous peoples, that it's not a coincidence. 
So this is kind of part of my awakening on, on these issues. I'm curious about your initial awakening. You know, you went from growing up in Arkansas to going to school in California to working for indigenous rights. And I'm, I'm curious how you got into indigenous rights. Yeah, well, it goes back a, a good piece, really, in my personal history, uh, somewhat. But yeah, as you mentioned, I did kind of grew up in a, I grew up in a very rural area of Arkansas in the 1980s, um, primarily, you know, in high school and the early 90s, kind of pre-internet days too. So there was a lot of exposure to um, international indigenous issues. What really struck me from what I recall was the Zapatista rebellion in Mexico mm. uh, in the 1990s, I believe it was 1994. And this at the time really blew my mind. Here was a primarily indigenous rebellion in southern Mexico against what we would call neoliberal or the neocolonial reality of centuries of oppression that had continued. And so it was just a very, very powerful indigenous face to this type of resistance against social and justice that also really spoke to the, the moment because it wasn't that far past the time, you know, that the Berlin Wall had fallen, yeah. you know, in 1989, and I was maybe 16 at the time, but there was this sense, right, that I've learned later, it was kind of the end of history, like the, the Soviet bloc had fallen, there was only one way forward now, and that was um, the US model, right, and everything that that implied, but this was then like a shout from below that no we're not going to sit around and take this and so that really was in some ways kind of a political and social awakening for me and i won't go into the long story of my trajectory after that but i did spend a lot of time you know in latin america especially south america do you attribute your concern about the Zapatista uprising to already knowing something about and having an affinity for indigenous struggles? Because, you know, I, I grew up not too far from you in Texas. And in Texas, in particular, Native American history has just been completely wiped away. It's like it, they were never here. So I'm curious, how, you know, I, what I was interested in was uh, in high school that connects to all this was I, I heard that Wendy's was deforesting the Amazon to grow beef. And I thought that was terrible. And that, that was kind of my point of entry. But indigenous peoples, I, I don't, I'm not sure I would have known what what I was looking at or what what that meant. Well, I'm not sure what I was uh, that I knew what I was uh, looking at either, to be honest. Um, and I didn't know much about indigenous peoples. Definitely not formally, and had never spoken to one, and maybe just had perceptions in my mind from movies I'd seen. I'm probably just kind of basic stereotypes. But at that moment, I just saw this as an important moment for what movements for justice were looking like internationally. And, you know, I'm, I also contributed somewhat to my father, who was, he was a peacenik, you know, very anti-war. And this was also soon after the first Gulf War, 1991. So there was, you know, that kind of awareness about US military power overseas as part of what I would later come to call empire in a lot of the world and especially in Latin America, but just having a very strong sense of the abuse of American power overseas. And this was one of the first times I saw like a grassroots rebellion against that. And it just was very inspiring. Yeah, it, it really strikes me that human rights is the core of Survival International's work. To, yeah. Well, to say absolutely. That's absolutely right. So there are these very deep environmental dimensions. You know, there's political and there's policy dimensions to all this. But really, I mean, you distill it all down and it comes down to human rights. And the indigenous peoples have rights in various international courts. And maybe just even in ways of, of, of common sense, you could say, of you know, our base understanding of 
of um, these people are humans. And how is it that, you know, they're being kicked off their land and, you know, so we have like safaris we can go to or being murdered. So we can continue to have the type of fossil fuel consumption that we have. But, you know, the basis really is a human rights issue. One more question I want to ask you about this is um, sort of what you have personally learned when you were in the field. But I'll uh, preface that by saying that in doing some general research since we've spoken, I found this great short interview with John Trudell, the Native American activist and actor. And the long story short on that, I shared this with Jared today because it was really powerful for me. And the, the thing I learned from that, the difference between the, the, the built economy and these indigenous cultural worldviews is they live in a connectedness paradigm and we don't. And that is how we are able to exert these inhumane practices on ourselves, on each other, and certainly on the other who could be an indigenous person or community far, far away. And so to not get into that too deeply, I just, I'm really coming around and starting to really, really, you know, feel strongly about this. And I really uh, thank you guys for being there for more than 50 years. And so that's a pretty big idea. But when you were in the field, did you feel like you learned anything and, and that you can share about that experience from those people, from that culture? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, you know, in some ways it's like dangerous and ill-advised to, to generalize when there's such a really wide diversity of indigenous peoples and tribal peoples. There's a spectrum of how some peoples are more integrated into what we would call industrialized society and other people aren't. But I think there are some important, you know, kind of commonalities or ideas that you were just mentioning, Chris, that are really, I think, important to, to kind of think about, that are useful to think about, about this kind of, um, the separation that we see in, you know, the West, and I'll just say the West as a, you know, as a shorthand, you know, for the global North or however you want to talk about it. Um, you know, because we primarily see nature as separate from society rather than part of it, right? In the Western tradition, we have a much more utilitarian relationship with nature or the environment, right? Where we see it as the resources, um, the resources that we can utilize, maybe sustainably, maybe not, but still in a large sense, this is, we see nature as the resources for for us, in fact, when you kind of think about the Protestant work ethic, where you were a moral person by taking your own labor and mixing it with the natural world, the resources to make something, right? That's how you created value and wealth in the world. We really have this idea that we have to exploit it, right? To, to be good people in a way. Uh, you know, this is not always explicit, but these undercurrents are really still present in, in our society. And that's I think, you know, lends itself to think like, well, if we need to protect a natural area, like Yosemite, not too far from, from where I am and where Jared is, we need to make sure no one's living there, no one's using these resources. And that's very different from many majority of indigenous peoples who see themselves as part of nature, but don't have the strict binary or dichotomy of two separate items, even if two separate items, we think they could live in harmony. And I think this is important too. I was talking about exploitation in kind of the Western mind view, but there's also when we think of environmentalism in protected areas, right? So it's that same idea of keeping people out, but also the utility that we extract from it might be enjoyment of hiking, of being out in nature, which I get because I love that. It's one of my favorite things to do to get in, uh, into nature, quote, quote, unquote. So not that these things don't have value, but you can see how it's kind of the same thinking in a way, right? And so I think you need to kind of examine that because, you know, we're imposing this way of thinking onto other places that don't think that, and we're causing much harm, both from our extraction and in our attempts to address the impacts of our extraction and destruction of nature. So 
going back to indigenous people see themselves closer to nature, a part of nature. And this is not to, to try to paint indigenous peoples as living in nature or some kind of simpler beings, because that in itself is a destructive and racist trope that can get thrown around often by well-meaning and ill-meaning people historically. As Including well. conservationists, sounds like. Yeah, many times that's definitely right. So it does in itself was like, well, you know, or maybe they used to be living in harmony, but they're ignorant and, you know, things have moved on and we still need to protect these areas. And only we really know how to do it, right? Because we have PhDs and we know how, we, you know, we've done the research, et cetera, et cetera. But it's to say that, you know, nothing very, really crazy to think about, right? But if your whole society, you know, if your society is, has a much more direct, direct relationship with actively manage the environment to produce and cultivate, you know, the medicines you use, uh, the food you eat, these are your religious sites, your religious practices um, may take place in, in different parts of your territory. Your social practices of exchange depend on different resources that might only exist in certain places within your territory. It's a very complicated livelihood system that comes from these ecosystems, excuse me. And so it's not, you know, it's not surprising that there is a different relationship to nature in, in to a large degree there. And just in terms of knowledge. Yeah, I wanted to say you mentioned uh, on this point, you mentioned, um, I was asking you these kind of vague questions about indigenous wisdom and whether the, the stewardship was implicit and the, and the last week. And the way you responded to that was that it's really more about livelihoods and knowledge systems that they depend on, they're integrated into this stewardship connectedness survival paradigm. And um, yeah, it's more, it's more about knowledge than about some sort of ethos. I, I think that's right. And I think that's an important point too, because again, as I mentioned that something else that survival is, is fighting against is just, you know, basically racist ideas in society. And one current of those ideas is indigenous peoples live closer to nature, right? But that's kind of perceived or expressed as in a way being more childlike or less developed or somehow living in the past, right? And, and I think that's very harmful and lends itself basically to human rights violations if you, if you really think about it and drawn out. But no, the, you know, these are modern peoples who just live differently from us and have different experiences with the lands and, and the environment. They've managed these lands and ecosystems in sustainable ways. And there's more and more evidence of this coming out where we have sometimes in the West, this idea of perceived wilderness, like the Amazon, for example, we see that as just kind of this wild ecosystem. And maybe there's pockets of people kind of within this uh, wild ecosystem, but it's more evidence that really we should think about places like the Amazon and others as kind of, the, in a way, kind of gardens that have been managed in different ways mm. um, by indigenous peoples over time. There's just a couple of quickie, uh, you know, examples. Within the Amazon, there's this thing called, I think it's dark earth or black earth, but it, this uh, soil they've discovered that's been basically built by indigenous peoples over millennia and the other one is just where they've seen and looked at say indigenous peoples have in certain areas taken useful seeds of useful trees and plants and, and have kind of strategically planted them or left those in certain areas right that, that will then produce along these different routes and it's not random that it's there it's been cultivated it's been managed and then another, I'll, I'll give another one because it's one of my favorites because it's also US-based. So it's great, I think, for US listeners. And it's, um, it, it comes to with burning practices, right? And for those of us who remember who Smokey Bear was or is, I don't know if he's still around, uh, <laughs> right? Where I grew up, you know, in my time, we get those little comic books and it's like, you know, stop forest fire, stop. And the worst thing in a forest could be a fire. And we're just, I mean, we live in California. Jared and I, and you did too for a while, Chris, but. You know, fires are, forest fires are a big deal. I mean, we're just now getting to the point where we're starting to look at and learn from indigenous burn practices, which just really briefly in a nutshell, I'm not an expert in this, but people should look into it. 
who routinely uh, controlled burns, um, controlled burn the territories or lands. And this has a number of advantages. Um, just in terms of forest fires, it burns off a lot of the quick burning underbrush and doesn't allow it to accumulate. So when there is a fire, it doesn't burn as hot and doesn't cause as much damage. And that clearing that out also creates border areas between different types of woodlands and forest. Basically, create, you know, people who study ecology creates edges right, between a prairie and a forest. Or then there's oak woodlands, uh, mixed oak woodlands, and then there's the redwood groves. Right? But they found like a lot of that biodiversity lives on these border areas that are created. Yeah, right? at the and, edge. Yeah, right, it's a big edge. permaculture concept as well. Exactly. And so that's something that, you know, indigenous people have been practicing forever in California. And it really is a very, I think, striking example of this kind of biodiversity management embedded in cultural practices and livelihood systems, right? People coming from the Western perspective for many, many years is still just couldn't see it. Right. They didn't see if there wasn't a fence up, they didn't think the land was being used, right? If there wasn't a plowed field, they don't see that land as being used. This is still a big issue for pastoral people mm -hmm. in Africa, right? We just think they're perceived as wandering around and not being efficient with their resources. But really, these are very deeply complicated and non-static. They're evolving systems. Because again, I don't want to give the impression that this is, you know, some traditional knowledge that's somehow stuck in time. So these, you know, right. like all other systems, they evolve. They take in new information. We all know the climate is changing, right? There's new stressors. You lose some of your land, right? You have to adapt. If you have a resilient system, a resilient system can cope with that right? for a certain amount of time. But so really is that lively system. And there's a lot of knowledge and biodiversity benefits embedded in this. Um, just as you were talking, I had this image come up of us, like humanity on a big hike together. And you're up, you're like one of the leaders, you're like up, up ahead. Yeah, it, it, that, that's the image you're up ahead. And I, I, I'm thinking about these insights that we, you know, are, we're conditioned to value the land for our own purposes, for example. Like there were tons of insights, you know, that that were that we that we uh, think of ourselves as separate from nature. These are these are insights that I will think about and integrate over time. But some people, some people, and I don't mean this in a um, like you're better than anybody in the back of the line. Just I think we're all equal. But still, I, my question is about how to help the people who are further back transform their worldview. That's my general question. How do we help people transform their worldview? I'm wondering, you know, some, some, of, some of the solution is about funding organizations like yours, but some of it is about changing our own minds, right? So how, I'm wondering if you've thought about any strategies well, I've, I've thought about this many times, um, and I don't know if there's all, always a great and easy answer, but some things that, that I think, um, and that is part of Survival International's strategy and ethos is that really the only way to real and lasting change, positive change, is changing hearts and minds basically and getting kind of a critical mass of people on board with these ideas and i think you know there's different ways to approach these issues because there's lots of different dimensions and many are very very valuable and important including kind of policy change right or some people are really doing really cool things with mapping out indigenous territories as part of land claim. And those are all great. And what's we've seen at Survival over these decades is that when you really get enough people on your side, 
then that's what makes policy change stick. That's what makes it possible in the first place. You know, because these are very, very large forces that are at play here. I mean, we all know, you know, the kind of clout of the fossil fuel industry here in the US. I imagine what that's like in a small country, right? And what we really think will stop that is people on board, kind of as a mass movement. And, you know, one kind of example that we can think about, I, I don't say it's completely equivalent, but you can think about how, you know, the institution of slavery throughout time, you know, at some point it became through the activism of many, many people and many, many movements, it reached kind of a critical mass where it just was not, for the most part, an acceptable way of, you know, running a society. And so it pretty much died out. Um, I mean, there's nuances there. And I don't want to, you know, be overly Pollyannish about that. But it's just an example, I think, of how societal change, a change in perception. That's a happy dog. We had a cat last week, by the way. Okay. Yeah, it's the mailman came. That's our dog's nemesis. Um, and she could be loud. She doesn't bark very often, but when she does, you you know she's around. Um, but as I was saying, so that is one way I think of a kind of a, addressing this part of the work of survival um, is trying to do. Um, but of course, the other part is, you know, actually trying to defend specific, help specific indigenous groups defend their territory in moments of crisis through the, the spotlight and the megaphone that I, that I mentioned earlier in other ways as well. Um, but really the key for us on a practical level in many ways is land rights for indigenous peoples because we see if the land-based territorial rights are intact and respected and not destroyed, then indigenous peoples in many, many cases will not just survive as they'll thrive. So that's really key. And of course, then there's the environmental benefits that come from that. Also on our website and other places, you'll see satellite imagery of the Brazilian Amazon and other places. Uh, where you'll see where these indigenous territories are recognized and protected by law. And then you'll see vastly lower rates in many cases of deforestation. And so those time-lapsed satellite imageries will kind of show how deforestation is spreading in the Amazon, except for these polygons of green in many cases, and these are indigenous territories. They're not national parks necessarily. They have research now that shows Deforestation is even lower in indigenous areas than it is in national parks in lots of places, right? And that's where indigenous peoples, again, are already living and using the resources. And so it just speaks to kind of the, the lie or the big green lie, as we say on our website, notice, Chris, some of, about protected areas being the way forward to saving biodiversity when it's really what we should be mostly concerned of as a first step is protecting indigenous territorial rights. Um, just on the hearts and minds piece, Gandhi's philosophy of change came up for me. I, I don't know if you're familiar, but Satyagraha, truth power. And um, the way I think about it is, you know, it's intellectual, emotional, and spiritual truth and that when we're we're coming from an authentic place we're a congruent place there's 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 power in it and that's that's how you're impacting me i just wanted to 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 acknowledge that that that's happening um just i guess hi highlight it that's amazing to hear jared that's just extremely uh I don't know if the word's gratifying, but it's, you know, I'm moved to hear that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about certain campaigns where we have this question of how, 
what are the best ways to help indigenous people now? Yeah, campaigns or or strategies, big, strategies, big concepts. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're both big and small, right? They're big, you know, the strategies that then have small concrete steps, ideally. But let me, yeah, let me talk a little bit about some of our campaigns. Um, and one that we've been working on for a very, very long time is some advocacy for uncontacted tribes. And not everyone knows that there still are um, uncontacted tribes of people living, you know, primarily in the Amazon rainforest and other places too. And of course, given their nature is being uncontacted, which means they're not in any kind of regular peaceful contact with outside groups. Although we know that they know the outside uh, world exists and they've often left some signs that show us that they're actively choosing, probably for very good reasons, not to you know, engage the outside world. And I'm using outside world in, in air quotes in a way. I just want I just want to interrupt and say mm -hmm. that the the contrast of you talking about this important thing with your dog like <laughs> hacking in the back it's just it's, it just I just felt like if I didn't say something listeners will will be distracted so I yeah. just I had a, I had a I had to call it out okay yeah our dog sometimes swallows socks <laughs> and we've done everything we can to put away all the socks and not have any socks around but somehow she finds them and often hacks them up. So it is distracting. I didn't know how well you guys could hear it. I could definitely hear it. Um, I could hear it. <laughs> yeah, so it is quite uh, a, uh, yeah, a contrast. I'll try to go back and now to, to talking about some of the work we do around. And the reason we did the, that we do work on the uncontacted issue is A, really by, their status of being uncontacted, they have zero voice um, to advocate for their own rights um, by sort of by definition, right? Also of their status, they're the most vulnerable people in the world. And we know, I mean, it's 100% clear that they're 100% dependent on their environment to reproduce their livelihoods and their communities. And we also know through history that contact is, is usually fatal. Uh, you know, very destructive. There are anthropologists who have kind of argued now that we need to contact uncontacted peoples because it's inevitable. And we need to be able to at least try to manage it correctly. But what we've seen time and time again is that it completely destroys uh, their way of life as a, a people, sometimes through complete extinction, other times just from then being integrated in society basically as marginalized citizens in the global community, but basically means you're, you're reduced to uh, being beggars, having lost your land base. So it's very, very serious. So there is this kind of big issue then about how we can best, you know, advocate to get land protections for uncontacted peoples and it depends country by country but it does go down to again recognizing land rights because then the territory integrity is protected and i think this is kind of an important point for your listeners as well and of interest to to you both as well too that also letting the choice stay and lay with the peoples themselves and not with us so at Survival International, we don't have any opinion about whether or not indigenous peoples writ large or uncontacted peoples, you know, how, how they should live. That's up to them. It's not up to us. What we advocate and work for is uh, protection of their lands and their lives so they can make that choice for themselves and, and not have it imposed from, from without basically our society, which is, you know, Looking at history, done a pretty poor job of that uh, over the last you know, five centuries or longer. But the actual practical campaign part of that, right, really depends on on the context, context, 
And we'll see in places like Brazil right now, who has a very right-wing anti-Indigenous president, Jair Bolsonaro, who has really trying to turn back the clock on Indigenous rights and is supporting efforts to basically open up their lands for mining and other exploitation, sometimes implicitly by just encouraging land invasions, but often explicitly by supporting laws that will strip them of the rights or open up their territories for exploitation. So a lot of it is working in partnership with indigenous organizations on their strategies that they themselves formulate on how to do that on a national level within Brazil. How do we push back, right? And then we can try to add a attention and media attention and power to that struggle and then also bring international pressure onto, could be the government, could be an agribusiness company, depending on what's going on. So it really depends on it. In Peru, we've been working on getting territories, recognizing these very long, decade long, decades, sorry, plural process of getting land recognition for uh, uncontacted indigenous peoples because there was an existing law about how to get this done, but it was taking decades to get it done. So we're putting efforts to, to pushing that forward, mostly through public pressure, working in partnership with indigenous groups who were, who were pushing for that. And that was recently successful just a couple of weeks ago, the final hurdle to getting the territory officially protected for a particular uncontacted group went through and was approved. So there's more to be done. But hey, there's a, a success that, that's a big victory. Know, yeah, that we can feel good about and just shows there's a path forward. And unfortunately, you know, this work is never going to end, I don't think. The struggle is kind of eternal. Maybe at least not in our lifetimes. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. Well, that actually does not frame my next question very well, <laughs> which is, um, you know, really what's the ideal outcome? What does the future look like if we do achieve what I would call the indigenous solution? How is life different? Have you ever been able to visualize that? I think, I think my nonprofit needs to now focus on trying to be part of this culture change that Jared was asking about and that you've been talking about, we've got to wake more people up. We've got to find ubiquitous commonality, I think, in, in valuing indigenous peoples as the best stewards of the life support system and understanding that that's probably because of this kind of connectedness paradigm that they live inside of. But so if we, if we get to a state, let's say 30 years from now, where all indigenous communities have been given permanent land rights, what does that look like? What does that feel like? What's, what's the world like after we have achieved what only makes sense, it seems to me? At the beginning, you were saying we need to change conservation or, or environmental protection in a really big way. And that this is what we're talking about is, is that the focus in environmental protection and species protection should begin with indigenous rights, should begin with indigenous land rights, should begin with understanding that it is not a coincidence that those things are best preserved in those communities. So if, if we can make that turn, if we can get to a culture that values its life support system and then understands that the, the people that are living on the most productive and biodiverse places are the indigenous peoples and therefore need to be empowered as equal members in the global decision-making paradigm and the global continuation paradigm, what is that future like? Well, that's, uh, Chris, that's a tiny, tiny question with a very easy answer. So thank you for that softball. There. <laughs> um, no, seriously, that's a, yeah, a very, yeah, deep question, I think, um, and complicated. So I, by no means, I think, can we be, you know, Pollyannish about, um, you know, achieving a better world and how, easy it might be if we just did X, right? There will always be struggles. And you laying out this kind of scenario, to me, 
I mean, it would it would sound amazing um, as a really great first step, and it probably is just a first step, right? To well, a addressing some very very wrong wrongs yeah. that have gone throughout the history of colonialism and its modern forms and what we might call green colonialism on our website we call it the big green lie um right but as a point we all want to save the environment uh, and i think we all recognize how critical that is but to really in a way become a positive force in the world it would start with you know empowering indigenous peoples this is really an environmental justice question you know a lot of environmental justice kind of focuses on who pays the price of environmental degradation and who sets the priorities for the agenda um, this is a very uh, related question to that more kind of on the international scene than some of us in the states are are used to i mean it's very difficult work because of in some ways how powerful conservation organizations are and i mean that both kind of literally in in terms of the budgetary monies that they have to throw around compared to organizations like survival international or other human rights organizations but also kind of more what we we're talking about it was were these ideas of conservation and kind of that go to a large part unquestioned by the majority of, of people who really do care about the environment you know do want to protect pandas and tigers and some of the other you know um, spokespeople of the uh, the large charismatic mammals that are under threat right now but for me it would be a world where we're tackling these problems based first off a question of justice and i think that's not a bad way to approach most questions and problems in the world and it's particularly i think important for the environmental movement because the environmental movement in a way is it's based on ideas of justice and of a more healthy world right but then have to be you know we have to go deeper than that and decide what that looks like and recognize who's been paying the price for our own in a way good intentions to address the messes that we made the royal we the global north so i don't know if that's really answering your question um what that would look like but um i think it's absolutely necessary first step for the future of conservation absolutely and really need something that's active and, um, and because more and more we'll see this um, the same type of things that survival has been talking about are now more and more common people worried about environmental issues and in some ways that's great so it really shows how there's more and more recognition by more and more people of um, indigenous peoples being absolutely critical to addressing environmental concerns and absolutely need to have you know their knowledge systems recognized as sustainable systems and that we have a lot to learn from that a lot of principles and and otherwise lessons that we can take from that but also we have to be careful though that there's things are actually enforceable things are like rhetoric's not enough right giving a seat at the table is not even enough since although it's an important step we need to think about you know there's a difference between saying we're going to do better and we respect your rights versus in like well here's you know here's the safeguards that say if we don't respect your rights x y and z happen to us and we're accountable and that's why i think a lot of international conservation is in the scene is actual accountability and that allows abuses to continue in my perception is that environmentalists think they're doing the right thing 
as you said, every, sort of everybody is is in it for uh, across the spectrum, you know, politics in the United States, even that generally speaking, people do care about the future of the environment. And then you have this huge spectrum of people that are active in various ways. And so a lot of the people that I've sort of used to run with, as it were, that are uh, so-called environmentalists are focused on manufactured solutions, thinking the best thing we can do is address the technical world that we live in. And so I think one positive that we can rely on is that people, a lot of people that are active now really do want to do the right thing, don't have enough information and could be um, super helpful in the future as they begin to, to learn these things. And then at the same time, I think based on just my personal experience, we don't have a, a mental picture. We don't, we don't have a constellation or a concept that we can look at about indigenous people even sort of coexisting in this society that we live in. And so the challenge begins with, with that, which is part of the reason that John Trudell thing I mentioned earlier spoke to me as well, that he's talking about becoming human and uh, finding your own connectedness to, which Jared and I have talked at various times about your own body and how that can help you understand that someone else is also having an individual experience and that doesn't have to be a human. And you begin to open up and, and to relate to the world in a more biological way. And then that to me ties to the human rights piece that what we really do have to have in this next paradigm, if we're going to uh, achieve a solution, a, a global environmental solution is absolute, you know, sort of joy. Uh, this is maybe me putting my emotions on it, but we have, I'll take joy out and just say, we have to have a real understanding that diversity is reality, that, that the diversity of human cultures is how we got here. It is the, you know, a, a sort of a parallel or a, a layer on top of the biodiversity that, that makes the life support system function. And that we can start to put these layers together. And I, and I, I again, I agree with this focus on justice being at the core. And I think this is such a good time to be talking about justice. So, yeah, I just think, um, I think we should consider this hopefully a conversation that is the beginning of some others. You know, I really want to see this um, reconstruction of the wilderness continuum thing happen as the, as the primary climate solution. I don't think we're even focused in the right way yet when we talk about climate solutions, unless we're talking about ecosystems and indigenous peoples. And um, putting justice at the center is not really my passion or competency per se, but again, I think it ties to the most important element, which is this reality of diversity that we have yet and, and connectedness that we have yet to really make the basis of our economy, the basis of our values. I don't know if you guys want to chime in and comment on that, but, but yeah, I think we do have lots of potential here to bring in a lot of new people that will go, oh, holy cow, I thought I was doing the right thing. Yeah, I have a a few things that you said that really struck me. One is the diversity is reality statement that you made. Um, you know, and that we do talk all this time about biological diversity. And if you have an ecology background too, you know, we know, and I studied uh, sustainable agricultural systems, indigenous and peasant small farming systems around the world. That was one of my research things. It was really, really important to me because it showed kind of a path forward, these principles that we could learn. But one of those big things out of that is right, a resilient system that um, provides um, bunches of different foodstuffs and different agency uses and has all these biodiversity things. That diversity is its strength against shocks or floods or, or whatever. That keeps people from going hungry. It keeps species from going uh, extinct. And there's also my, that concept of diversity is strength. It's a real thing. And so we also think that the diversity of humans is also an important value and just principle to think about. And that's really in some ways what, what we're talking about is, is human diversity and the great value of that. And that really is what you also the importance of, I think of, of conversations, of actually doing the work, of changing people's minds because people know this is, I mean, in some ways it's the issue of our day. And, you know, we really need to in, engage in these conversations and, that's part of building a new reality in people's minds and kind of like what you're saying is like building a mind map about what the future should look 
look like. And that just the last thing I'll say on what you said about um, your colleagues and friends who you know think about oh, we need to work on really kind of the technology side, which is an impetus that I understand, but I think in many cases can be counterproductive um, or destructive. And I'm not making any value judgment on any particular project or, or, or person. But it's kind of, you know, like we always, well, we always think this, but a lot of times like, you know, technology will save us. We're going to design that app that's going to make our life, solve our life problems, right? We're going to design the technology that's going to solve our energy problems. And I think that is, it's a large degree a false solution. Not that improvements aren't necessary in the energy system, for example. But if we think that's how we're really going to address these problems when they're much more deeply rooted in that, then I think we continue to fool ourselves and continuing to have solutions like some of these, you know, super scary, uh, you know, the terraforming, releasing different things into the atmosphere. You know, to me, I, it's completely misguided and it's not solving the root and the root is, is a relationship to each other and the most vulnerable among us. I would just add a relationship to ourselves. Yes. Well, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but just to end here, I want to say that you said something like these conversations are the way to build this new paradigm. Or if we're talking about it, like in the context of this podcast, like this bridge, I have had that sense that I've been able to see the bridge like extending or this, this um, I don't know, new, new paradigm forming in this conversation. So I'm, I'm so grateful and uh, for the conversation and for the work you do and, and just to meet you. And I just, I hope that many people hear this and that those people take it in and begin those conversations too. I definitely will. And um, I'm going to say a little bit more, but I'm wondering if Chris, you want to jump yeah. in. I just want to add to that officially, Daniel, thank you for being here. And um, I can't thank you enough for the, the work you're doing on indigenous peoples and human rights. And I look forward to trying to find ways to support you and you guys going forward. Well, thanks so much, Chris and, and Jared. It was great to talk and it was really interesting um, conversation. I really hope it continues to spark more conversations. And I don't know how I put it either, you know, Jared, exactly I said about, you know, creating a path forward, but it, it's definitely part of it. And you can't change the world without changing, you know, minds. And that, that, that seems pretty pretty basic uh, a fact. And so, I mean, we know there's lots of different hard things that go along with that, you know, because we also have to all pay our bills, et cetera, et cetera. So these are by no means easy things, but conversations can lead to action, which have real impacts. So I'm just really grateful to be here and to be able to, to talk with you guys. And yeah, I hope, hope it continues in the future. Me too. And for anyone listening, please go to the website. There's plenty of information there. If you have lots of different um, direct actions, um, petitions and things like that, that, you know, that we push from time to time as part of campaigns. Um, so there's lots of different ways to get involved depending on your capacity and time that you have and, and interest. But um, really Survival International depends on its supporters and um, I didn't mention this before, but, you know, we don't take any government money um, and our philosophy has been, you gather strength from lots of many, many small people rather than, you know, a few big foundations or other large pots of, of money or donors, because it really can, I think, start to influence your own work, even if you think um, you might be immune to that. But you know, our supporters do their actions that they do. It just makes us hopefully really agile, you know, can mobilize a lot of people quickly 
to really have a lot of impact without having a bunch of money. It's really one of our strengths, I think. We've been hanging out with and getting to know Dr. Daniel Lavelle, who is the U.S. Director for Survival International, one of the world's leading groups for indigenous rights and their land occupation rights. Visit survivalinternational.org to learn how you can help. I will be looking it up with you. Great. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah cool. thank you. Tame my monkey mind. I wanna be a monkey.